To automatically get new episodes, you can subscribe on iTunes or Google Play. And don't forget to like us on Facebook at Health Stories Podcast. So um, I found myself lying on the, on the floor of the emergency room, waiting room, um, which looking back is something that I can't believe that I did because I know how, how filthy those floors can be. Um, but I had walked into the waiting room and talked to the triage nurse because I was in such pain that um, I needed a place to, to lie down and I asked her for um, a cot or something to lie on and she just had this really blank face and said um, that she uh, that there wasn't anything available. And um, at that point I was crying, um, I was hunched over and um, uh, my back had hurt like I, I just couldn't imagine before. Um, and uh, I just knew that I needed to lay down. I had found, like when I was at home before I came to the emergency room, a position that was um, somewhat better, um, lying in a certain position. So I just uh, got on my hands and knees and then laid down on the emergency room floor. Um, and she just looked away. And um, there was a a registration guy who was, um, he looked like he was still a teenager, but he saw me lying on the floor of the ER and he brought over a sheet. And I remember feeling such gratitude for him um, that he was showing me some human kindness um, when I was otherwise really being ignored. Um, and it seemed like a lot of effort to actually get on the sheet lying on the floor. Um, but it was this this interesting contrast of, of feeling this gratitude towards him and, and this bewilderment towards this woman who was just ignoring my suffering. So welcome to Health Stories, real stories inside the healthcare system. And we are here to invite you, the listener, to hear the story of physicians and also patients who have navigated through the complex healthcare system offering insights and tips for all of us to take from their experiences. I am joined here by Dr. Mara Mateus Carries, who is going to share with us her experiences living with chronic back pain. Welcome, Dr. Mateus Carries. Thank you. So what happened next? You, you were given a, a sheet to lay on on the floor. And yeah. uh, so, so what happened next? So next, um, the so the triage nurse had uh, done what they call a, there's a, a term called fast tracking someone when they think that somebody is is not really that sick then they'll send them off to a certain section of the ER um, where there might be PAs or nurse practitioners um, and it's for people who maybe have colds or sore throat things like that um, and so she sent me off on that track uh, which kind of cemented in my mind that she wasn't really taking what I was dealing with very seriously, but it also was kind of a blessing in disguise because I ended up seeing a provider a lot quicker than I would have otherwise. Because um, uh, the PA came into the room um, after I finally made it into a room and was lying on an actual cot um, and saw that I was really having a hard time and went and got the attending, um, the attending physician um, in the ER at that time. Um, and 
um, he came in the room, and I only have a few memories of this. Um, when I was first, when I first came to the ER, a friend had brought me. Um, I was um, on vacation from. I was. I had just started as a resident, actually, a few months before that, a family medicine resident, and um, I was at home on vacation with my boyfriend, and um, he'd been in work for the day, so a friend had dropped me off at the ER, um, and um, when my boyfriend actually showed up, I think I, I didn't, um, I wasn't paying as, I trusted him to take care of what was going on at that point, and wasn't really attending as much, and I have a uh, few memories about what happened after that, except that the, um, the attending telling me that he thought that I had herniated a disc and that I needed an MRI. Um, and at that point, I remember being surprised that uh, he said that they couldn't give me an MRI there. I'd have to get um, a prescription for one and do that outpatient, um, that they just don't generally do MRIs from the ER. Um, you either have to you have to be admitted or outpatient to do an MRI, um, which is something that is pretty common. I now know, but at that point, I was wondering why they couldn't why they couldn't do an MRI and diagnose me and help me get better. Wait, so um, so so why do they do that? Well, why they do that is um, they'll they will. There's a few things that they might do an MRI for, like if it's something that they think they really need to diagnose somebody in an emergency. Uh, like if somebody might have a brain tumor or something along those lines. Um, but the ER is really focused at emergencies. Um, so once they've determined something that you have is not an emergency, they don't necessarily want to do the things that take a lot of time or a lot of money and might not be reimbursed in order to, um, to get you fully diagnosed. They'll more say, okay, we know that you're stable and that you can follow up outpatient and it's not going to hurt you to send you home at this point. It's kind of the thinking okay. there. So how much pain um, were you in at this time? Oh, I was in an enormous amount of pain. I couldn't really move. I had this one position that felt slightly better, and it was like lying kind of on my back but on my side with my, um, it's kind of hard to describe, but my knee bent and turned in a certain way. Um, and that was the most comfortable I could get. Um, but I had never been in this kind of pain before in my life. It was um, my low back running down my left leg to my toes, um, and I was feeling some weakness, a lot of numbness and tingling, and like this feeling of electricity running down my leg, um, which is pretty typical for a herniated disc. It's all these signs of, of the disc pressing against the nerve. Um, so, um, yeah, it was incredibly painful. I was having, like, walking was, an ordeal <laughs> at that point. And so then the suggestion was to get an MRI, but you had to get it elsewhere. Right? I had to get it elsewhere. Yeah. It was also a Friday that all of this happened on. So you can't get an outpatient MRI over a weekend very easily. Um, and at that point, I was in, um, in Philadelphia, but I was working about an hour and a half away. Um, and so uh, there's also this this problem with insurance coverage. You know, if you if you go to an ER and you get testing in the ER, then generally if you have good insurance, it's going to cover whatever you get done there. But um, if you are getting outpatient services, then you generally have to go to the network that your insurance wants you to go to, right? Okay. So I had to go back up um, to where I was working an hour and a half um, away, and 
they, they did actually get me in pretty quickly. I, they got me an MRI scheduled for Monday, um, but that ride up there was agony, just like trying to be, you know, sitting in a car position is not the position that was most comfortable for me, for sure. Hmm. So that was a really tough thing to do. So up until this point, is this something that you had lived with for a long time, or was this sort of a new phenomenon, the pain oh, that you... brand new. Um, I woke up in the morning uh, just feeling like like I had some like uh, a sore back, and within a few hours, it was just horrible pain. Um, I'd never had that pain before, and it didn't really occur to me until... Um, until the ER doctor said, I think you have a disc herniation, it all clicked in my mind because I, I learned, I've learned these, um, like all the symptoms of a disc herniation, but I was also such a new doctor that I hadn't really seen it enough to, um, to automatically know that beforehand. So I can't help but wonder, they send you home, it's a Friday, and you have to wait until Monday. What did you do over the weekend? How did you, how did you manage the pain? Well, I did talk to my primary care doctor who, um, who did prescribe me some medications. Um, she prescribed me um, some muscle relaxant and also um, some oxycodone. And then um, later, um, once the herniation was diagnosed and everything like that, she also started gabapentin, which is a medicine that's targeted more at nerve pain. Um, but at that point, I was um, I was just trying to stay in as comfortable a position as possible and uh, using the medications that she prescribed, and which which helped somewhat, but really not that much. So mostly I was just lying down and trying to distract myself. So on Monday you get the test done. What did it show then? It showed that I had a very a pretty large disc herniation. Um, that was pressing on the um, nerve root that runs all the way down from your low back to, to your toes. Um, and that um, from there, I, uh, I was really lucky that my, my primary care doctor um, was very good at, at helping me navigate the medical system. Um, and she helped me get set up um, pretty much right away with um, a physiatrist or a, a physical medicine and rehabilitation doctor who within, I believe within a week or so, I'd had a, a spinal epidural injection um, and to try and yeah, reduce the inflammation around the nerve root. Um, unfortunately, it didn't really help for me. Um, and then another one, they try, they try up to uh, like two or three times usually with the injections before you consider something like surgery, um, but the injection um, would help for maybe a day because there's some short-acting uh, medicine that they put in like a lidocaine or a numbing medicine um, and that would help but then the steroid that's supposed to decrease the inflammation wouldn't really make a difference um, and then so after about um, six weeks and trying some physical therapy and some anti-inflammatory medicine also um, I, I ended up getting back surgery so what was it like during those six weeks being a, a chronic pain patient? Would you would you label yourself as such? Yeah, well, I mean, six weeks, I guess, is a little short for the idea of um, chronic pain. It would become chronic pain since I um, 
Uh, a lot of times people talk about chronic pain being longer than three months or so. Um, and it was, it was definitely a scenario I'd never found myself in before where I was in constant pain. Um, and then after my first surgery, my, my pain wasn't completely resolved and there were some complications. I ended up having another surgery, <laughs> but, um, but the, the six weeks between like the initial pain and getting the surgery, um, I think that at that point I, um, I put all my trust in my primary care doctor and she really um, was pretty positive about outcomes for somebody. I was in my 20s at that point and um, there's, so there's not likely to be other problems like arthritis or things like that in your back. And so there's, um, I just had this belief, this trust in, in her and also in my own body that I would, um, that I would get better. Um, and I think it became harder later on when um, I had just repeated examples of, of not getting better over and over again and lost a lot of um, hope. That's when it became a lot harder to, to bear. Um, and that's where this whole idea that I think about a lot comes in where you can have pain, but if you don't have like a lot of distress associated with that pain, then you're not necessarily suffering as much. But once you have a lot of distress or anxiety or other negative emotions that are connected to that pain, then that's when I think people start really suffering. So it sounds like you went through a lot for for a long period of time, is that correct? Because you had the surgery after six weeks, but you had some complications, and then you didn't always feel relief. In fact, you started feeling sort of continuous pain. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I was out of work between um, those, uh, those six weeks and then um, recovery after the surgery for about two months. Um, and then had some, um, ended up having a, a spinal um, leak headache, and um, which was misdiagnosed. Um, and I found myself in the ER for the, the second time for what, um, I don't think I'd been to the ER maybe since I got stitches as a kid before then, you know? So, um, and then that was a, a very interesting experience because I was actually on my, um, my, um, uh, hospital service that I was a resident in, so I, my own co-workers and um, co-residents were, were uh, taking care of me at that point, um, and um, I had just restarted uh, work when that had happened, so I think I was there for a matter of days, um, and then I was out of work again for a little while, um, and I never really... Um, was able, I did have, I had some improvement from that initial intense pain, um, and it was more, it was much more bearable, um, and I found it really hard to work with the pain, though. Um, there's, um, another thing I think that I really learned about pain then was that, like, even when you have a moderate amount, and it's not something that you're sitting there unable to tolerate, it still can be really draining, um, and, um, it would just exhaust me and just trying to get through the work day, especially if I was working in a hospital and trying to walk all day. Um, and so then I ended up, um, 
yeah, they, uh, going back out of work um, to try and do more physical therapy and getting better, and um, and then ended up back in this um, talking to my primary care physician about it again. She thought that I should um, get some more testing done, and it turned out that. Um, I got an EMG, so it's where they measure the nerve impulses um, in different areas. Um, so they were looking at my at my leg mainly, um, and uh, it was showing that there was still some um, inflammation or something that was pressing against the nerve. Mm-hmm. So I went to talk to um, a different surgeon and um, ended up getting surgery again, and they found what they called a, a pseudomeningocele, which I had no idea what that was. Uh, I don't think... Um, most doctors would even know what that, that is, and I only know from experience. But um, they they thought that they were just going to find that more of the disc had herniated. But when they opened up my back, they saw that the spinal fluid leak that had happened after my surgery had actually collected and stayed in my um, in my back and was pressing against the nerve root, um, and the um, and that it was still communicating with the um, the spinal fluid. So. So there, during the surgery, my first surgery, the um, dura that holds all of the spinal fluid in around the, um, the spinal column um, was nicked, and that opening stayed open, basically. Um, so um, You have complications so from that first surgery, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this surgeon um, took out this pseudomeningocele and sewed up the dura, and um, I ended up... Um, after a lot of physical therapy and a lot of time, uh, much better off. Yeah. There is uh, so much I want to say and so much I want to <laughs> ask because I, I can't help but think of the millions of people um, that suffer and live with chronic pain. Um, and back pain is also something as well that a lot of people live with. I was just speaking with somebody Um, about their pain and they said when you are in chronic pain you can't think you can't work you can't function Um, so I'm just thinking about how did you go through a residency program for a number of years with chronic pain how how did you make it through that for for all of the people who are listening who are looking for hope and and wanting to know what and, and I don't mean the medical part, because you had surgery, and, and I'm sure many people are fearful of surgery as well, but what do you say to somebody who lives with pain day in and day out? I think that... I'm sorry, uh, for those of us listening, um, we're, we're doing a Skype interview, so my Skype just went off, so sorry. Um, so it's a, I think it's a, um, I think you can learn to tolerate pain, and part of that is... Um, by acting, uh, just by keeping on going, as if you're not in as much pain. Um, so, for example, I remember at one point being in my car. I was trying. I was trying to become more active again. And I know, and I think most people who have back pain know that it's really important to strengthen your core muscles and your back. Um, but getting to that point where you actually do that is actually quite painful. <laughs> so you you often end up during that process in more pain. Um, but I remember listening to an inter- interview on the radio um, where there was a pain medicine doctor who was saying that his patients who functioned the best and who were happiest with their lives were people who got back into doing physical activity, even if it 
caused them more pain, like more physical pain, they were happier with their lives. Um, and I, I sort of, I started thinking that that was very important to me, um, to be able to function. If I was going to have pain, I was going to have pain and there's only so much you can do about that. But the, the part where you can function or not, or the part where you can live in suffering or not is more of a choice. Um, and so I got back into like one of the things I always really loved to do before, um, my, initial um, disc herniation was rock climbing. Um, so I decided to get back into that. Um, and I found a gym near um, where I was doing residency and um, actually ended up finding somebody else there who also had some really bad back problems. Um, and we kind of encouraged and, and pushed each other. And, um, and over time I learned to be more okay with the fact that I knew when I when I went and did exercise and climbed that I would be in more pain, but also that I was um, doing what I wanted to do with my life. Um, and there's a lot of that, that. Just it's just so important to be able to do what you what you want to do. Um, and a lot of that's similar with with working with residency. Um, I mean, it's a, it can be pretty grueling with um, night float and crazy hours um, and even just walking in the hospital. You know, hospitals are often very big. Um, so walking from one end to the hospital to the next can be really difficult um, for somebody who's in pain. And so part of it was trying to get uh, help and support from people around me um, and come up with um, some solutions or things that might make things a little easier. Like I used a, a rolling bag um, instead of carrying all of my stuff in the pockets of my white coat. Um, and then um, medicines was another thing that I definitely uh, used to, to help improve uh, my pain. Um, and I also at the same time had a really hard time with it. I mean, this wasn't all, um, it didn't make it all okay. <laughs> it just made it more, um, more bearable and um, and also reminding myself, like residency, it's a very difficult thing to go through, both physically and mentally. And uh, once you're done with your three years, then you can choose more how you live and how you want to be a doctor. So reminding myself about the temporary nature um, and that um, there were easier times ahead. So I'm hearing you say the staying active, being physical, you found a back pain buddy to uh, go climbing with, to do an activity that you enjoyed. Uh, making uh, accommodations for yourself by, you know, bringing in bags that made it easier, rolling bag and your medications. You know, it's interesting because I think it's really important to listen to your body and it's also really important to sometimes ignore your body, as strange as that sounds. No, yeah, makes sense. Um, <laughs> if you pay too much attention to every little ache and pain, then you're never really going to get anywhere. Um, and so I think it's important to pay attention to the bigger messages and to think about, well, you know, maybe I have to take it easy today because tomorrow I really want to go rock climbing. And if I'm in too much pain, I know I won't, I won't. Um, so like the, the bigger things are really important. Um, and also paying attention to your limitations. Like, of course you shouldn't be doing anything that's actually going to physically damage you. Um, when I talk about being more active. Um, you don't want to do anything that's going to um, 
cause you to have increased pain that that lasts for a long time or that damages something in your body. Um, but I think that when you um, feel pain, I mean, the, the point of pain, right, is to tell us you're doing something that hurts, slow down, don't do that. And it's very easy to listen to that message. And sometimes you have to actually turn that off, though. Because if I go, uh, go out and go rock climbing and, and um, do something that makes my back ache, um, it's not, it's very unlikely that it's going to permanently hurt me in any way. Um, and it'll probably make my back a little bit stronger in the long run. Um, so um, ignoring those messages sometimes is important. Um, and um, the, the part that I think is, um, is really important about listening to, your, to yourself and your body is um, acknowledging that you are, uh, I'm just trying to think of how to say this. Um, so you can say, yeah, this, this hurts and it's really not comfortable, but the reasons why I'm doing it are this and it's going to get me where I want to go. Um, or alternatively, you can say, I'm just, I'm not up for this right now, <laughs> you know, and that's okay too. Um, and choosing your, your battles, um, like a lot of times I would find myself when I was really trying to get back into some, some semblance of getting into shape, I, I would, um, know that I, I could go out and go rock climbing, but then I'm not going to go home and do the laundry and clean my house and, and do those kinds of things. That's not, like, that wasn't a priority at that, that, that time um, because I, I wasn't really capable of doing all of the above, and some of it was more important to me than others. So being in, being in tune um, with yeah. your body and your limitations and recognizing what you're working towards. So those are all, those were all helpful to, for you, it sounds like. Yeah, definitely. I'd like to switch uh, topics. We've talked a lot about um, the pain that you uh, lived through for a number of years. I guess we can safely call it years. Um, yeah. You had uh, a medical, um, uh, well, surgery that needed to be corrected, and so you were in pain for a while. It sounds like, though, that your PCP was very supportive and that she or he really listened to you. Um, I'm wondering about those who are listening in who are maybe struggling with, they know that something is happening in their body, but they can't seem to convince the person that it's as bad as it is. And it sounds like you were through that. So we go back to the original ER story. It seems like you couldn't convince, I think it was the nurse, right, that you were in as much pain as you were in. So having gone through this for so many years, what advice would you offer? Um, what did you do in order to try to convince people um, to really listen to you, that you really were in as much pain as you were feeling? I think this is a really complicated issue. Um, I had a lot. Of, I had a pretty strong history with my primary care doctor at that point. She actually used to be my babysitter when I was a kid. Oh. <laughs> so, yes, she, long history. Yeah, exactly. Um, so she definitely trusted me, um, and also, um, the time period that we were talking about was just at the beginning of this, um, this, this time when people started becoming, um, really worried about the opioid overdose epidemic, and that hadn't really hit a lot of, um, a lot of doctors yet, um, so... 
um, at this point, it's something that we routinely talk about and are very worried about, about getting people um, hooked on opiates just by starting out by prescribing for, um, for a legitimate reason, for pain. Um, and at that point, uh, people weren't really talking about that as much. Um, there's uh, newer pain recommendations, like the chronic pain recommendations that have come out since then. Um, so I think people were a little bit more likely to uh, prescribe opiates um, at this point. Uh, people I, I know in residency are, are taught more that opiates are um, okay to prescribe for things that are acute, such as if somebody um, is in a car accident and has a big injury, you know, then you prescribe it for a limited number of days, but that uh, chronic pain isn't really best treated with opiates. Um, and I, um, my doctor wasn't, uh, she was willing to prescribe for me, and then later I also saw a physical medicine and rehabilitation doctor who uh, was willing to prescribe narcotics at that time. Um, I never used very much, um, and I actually had, <laughs> I mean, this is, I, I, I believe most doctors or uh, surgeons are doing this differently now, but I remember going getting out of the hospital um, from my first surgery and getting a bottle of, of Vicodin that contained 120 pills, um, and that was just routine. Um, and now people are prescribed um, a small fraction, maybe 30, you know, of that. Um, so, so things have really changed, and I think it makes it harder and harder for patients to um, to get to feel like they're being listened to and taken seriously when they bring up pain concerns. Um, and part of that is that um, back in the '90s, we had this. Um, uh, pain became one of the vital signs, and and um, doctors at that point were taught that they shouldn't be ignoring people's pain. That um, if somebody was tolerant to narcotics, you could give them more without any risk of overdose uh, because they were tolerant, and you were basically being a compassionate human being by doing this. Um, and um, and then people got used to getting their pains, even if they were not necessarily the biggest um, uh, pain that <laughs> they got used to getting it treated with narcotics and people started, like patients, started thinking that that was the appropriate um, treatment and um, that people who wouldn't prescribe narcotics weren't listening. Um, so there's this um, conflict that happened uh, between doctors and patients where um, when you see, uh, like looking back, not just doctors, I'd say everybody in the medical field, but looking back at this nurse, the triage nurse in the emergency room, um, I remember thinking like how much, she must have seen so much suffering in order to just turn herself off like that. Um, and she also probably has seen a lot of people who she felt were manipulating her um, and really turned off her compassion um, for whatever her, her reasons and needs were. Um, and so when, when doctors get people who come in and ask for narcotics and then the person is told um, that they won't get any, then that person um, might beg or um, use manipulative language or yell at the doctor 
and then the doctor becomes more and more um, unlikely to prescribe at that point because they feel like they're being used and manipulated. Um, and so it's this cycle that really pits the doctor and patient against each other. And I think that the conversation really has to change into how are we gonna how are we gonna treat your pain? How are we gonna make you feel better? Um, not necessarily about narcotics, you know, not about like the oxycodone out there, or not, but about like um, I can see that you're suffering, and these are the tools that we have available. And um, sometimes when I'm talking to patients, I, I um, will even tell them like, especially if they're not a good candidate for narcotics, and they're asking for that specifically. Then I'll say, I hear that you're in a lot of pain. I, I really, I hear where you're coming from, and I really feel badly for you. And I want to help you not be in this pain. And in this situation, narcotics are not an option. But I have all these other things I'd like to try with you. Um, and I think that some people take that really well, and other people don't. <laughs> you know? Well, and that's one of the questions I wanted to ask you is because you were a chronic pain patient who took for some time, um, at one point you had taken narcotics, you've been through multiple surgical procedures, there was a correction that was made, you know, so what is it like for you and, and for other clinicians who are listening, how do you then treat patients? So one of the things I just heard you say is to number one, acknowledge that that person is in pain and to name it and say, let's work on this together and it may not be a narcotic. Um, what other things do you do now um, as a clinician who's been through chronic back pain? So it is, it is a little bit of like, a, um, I, I do think, I, I mostly agree that narcotics are used best in acute situations. Um, and then there is part of me that does think that they can be helpful in, in chronic situations. Um, and you have to be incredibly careful about how you do that. Um, so I think that they're best used if used sporadically rather than around the clock because um, then people don't get tolerant to them. Um, and uh, there's a lot of the other steps that you can try to do to, to prescribe them in a way that um, doesn't cause as many problems. The, the, the problem, though, is that I myself know that I've never been hooked on, on narcotics, you know, so it's like I can say it was okay for me to get them, but I don't know the same about my patients because I'm not living their lives. Um, and I've had um, multiple times when, um, like when we're prescribing narcotics, we'll do urine drug screens, things like that. So I've had multiple times when people who I felt I was really close to uh, came up positive for cocaine or for a narcotic that we weren't prescribing. Um, and um, so it's it's hard to, uh, after those experiences, to completely trust that any patient is going to uh, use narcotics that are prescribed to them correctly, whether that's their, their fault um, or not. I mean, a lot of people, once they get tolerant, feel like they need more in order to treat their pain, and there's people who go to lengths to do that because they're really suffering. Um, but I, um, I am pretty hesitant at this point to prescribe narcotics um, for longer than a few months. And um, so the things that, there's, there's the things I would like to be able to offer to people, and there's the things that I can offer. And a lot of that has to do with, um, with money, uh, with insurance coverage, and access 
um, to places. So I think one thing that's extremely important for people to learn is how to tolerate pain, um, to understand that when you have chronic pain, you're always going to have some level of chronic pain, um, and how do you function well within that. And so therapy is really important for that, and especially things like cognitive behavioral therapy or even um, groups for people with chronic pain. Um, and um, that's really hard for people to access. Um, there's just shortages of therapists everywhere in our country. Um, and insurance companies might or might not cover that. Um, other things are there are medicines that are um, not addictive and are appropriate for chronic pain. Um, and, um, and people can get good effects from them, a lot of help from them. Um, like some of the ones I'd mentioned before that I took, um, I think that it doesn't have as much sort of, uh, like it, it, with, with a narcotic, a lot of people take a pill and feel pretty much instant relief within like half an hour or so. Um, and when you're taking something like gabapentin for nerve pain, it doesn't have that same kind of bang. It doesn't seem like it's as effective because it doesn't have that like instant take your pain away type of effect. It's more of a um, better for longer term, um, lowers your pain. Um, so uh, having people understand that the medications that you try, um, well, having the patients have different expectations about them is really important. So it sounds like you know part of it is really listening to someone's story, finding out what's causing their pain, how long they've been in their pain, um, but also having a conversation with them to find out what it is that has worked, um, offering them um, different options that they may not have heard of or have considered. Um, and it also sounds like you said education too is key, uh, but really finding out where they're at. You know, are you, uh, we've, I'm thinking of the different stages, right? Pre-contemplative, contemplative, like are you ready to yeah. have this conversation? Um, is this something that you're willing to consider? Um, but I, I keep hearing over and over again, it's really having a conversation, having a story, getting to know that person, and it sounds like that's something that um, is important that you do. Do you... Okay. I, the, the problem there, though, is that um, most doctors have 15 minutes to work with the patient. Right. Um, so getting to know somebody, over time you can do that, right. but having that type of conversation when they first come to you in a lot of pain is very difficult. Um, and then having talking to them about how they're gonna be in some pain is is near impossible for people to understand when you ha can't really sit there and have a full conversation yeah. with them. I asked this of a previous interviewee. Um, curious uh, to know as well. Do you share your story with patients? Once in a while, I do. Um, it depends on the patient. I don't, I don't do that. I definitely don't do that with everyone. Um, and I have had uh, one patient that I, I did share my story with. He then based all, tried to base all of his own treatment decisions on what I had or hadn't done. Oh, interesting. <laughs> and would ask me questions about what I'd done and what I hadn't had done. And, um, and um, I don't think that was necessarily a great situation. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty careful about it. But I think it can also... Um, when you're talking to somebody and they're afraid that you're not taking them seriously, not hearing them, when you can say, I've been in your shoes, like I actually have, I'm not just saying, oh yeah, I hear that you're in pain, and I think people often um, listen to you more and, um, and um, feel connection. 
The final question uh, is about navigating the system as a patient. So you are in and out of the ER, surgery, outpatient. Um, what are some sort of insights that you gain from years of being a chronic pain patient you think would be helpful for other people to hear about navigating through the system? That's a tough one. I think you're going to have the best reaction from um, doctors and, and all medical providers if you um, are as patient as you can be with them and are um, explain where you're coming from and don't get angry um, because then people turn you off. Like they just they stop listening as soon as you get angry. Um, but I can also understand why people get really angry. So um, you were angry too, right? Yeah, right. Um, so I think um, another thing is knowing when to try and, and convince people and knowing when to stop and find someone else. Um, like, it's harder to do when you go to the ER, you end up with the doctor you end up with, but for a primary care physician, you can find a new one um, and um, try and uh, educate them about what you've been through, where you're coming from, um, and if you talk to doctors about, if your goal is to go in and get narcotics, then you're going to have a lot less success at treating your pain than if your goal is to go in and say, I, I really need help, and what can you do to help me with this pain? Um, which might or might not include narcotics, but, um, but people are pretty wary of people who go in asking right away for oxycodone or one of the other narcotics. So being aware of <clears throat> the goal of care that you're seeking, it sounds mm -hmm. like. Um, being able to share your story and, and tell people where you're coming from, your, your provider. Um, knowing when it's time to switch, if it's possible to, to switch providers. Um, mm -hmm. It sounds like those are all um, really good words of wisdom from what you've been through. And, and the anger part is interesting, I've heard this from others as well, is when um, somebody's angry, it sounds like, and you've alluded to it as well, the, the system is, is really challenging. It's challenging in this system. Um, yeah. And so you have two human beings, you've got a clinician and, and a patient who are trying to communicate and connect, and the system inherently makes that difficult and sometimes almost impossible. Um, and so recognizing that your anger may be toward the system um, and, and less with the person potentially, right? Um, yeah. So that, that sounds like that could be a possibility. Mm -hmm. Any other final words or thoughts that you have for us? I think that's actually a really good note to leave on, just that um, remembering that patients aren't, as doctors I want, doctors to remember that patients aren't always trying to manipulate you and I want patients to remember that doctors are usually trying to be compassionate and are also trying to are, are not trying to ignore you um, but the way the system works kind of pits us against each other so being uh, compassionate toward yourself and compassionate toward others which is really hard to do when you're in, in pain yeah. Um, so not, not an easy topic and uh, really thank you so much um, 
for sharing your story and telling us uh, what it was like living through your experiences and what the rest of us can gain um, about navigating through the system and uh, also living day in and day out with, with chronic pain. So thank you, Dr. Mateus Carries, for joining us today. Thank you. It was, a, it was a pleasure. Thank you. This is Health Stories.